Our gospel text to us for this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 23. You can follow along in your um, your Bible in the pew, if you want. Now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And as Jesus went from there, he saw two more brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat, they left their father, and they followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. A word of God for the people of God. So, my German grandmother would be very disappointed in my pronunciation of this, but Frederick Holderlin, one of the greatest German poets who ever lived, once wrote, where there is danger, salvation also grows. Where there is danger, salvation also grows. Implicit in this poet's words, I think, is the suggestion that it is precisely when we begin to bump into the things which threaten us that we also come face to face with the potential for what saves. We don't often think about threat or danger in that way, though, most of us is an opportunity for some great potential to emerge or divine mystery to unfold. Most often, especially in a world where threat and danger seems to always be just around the corner, if our minds go anywhere at all, it's to the idea that what is dangerous or threatening offers us very little. In fact, it may even be an indicator of an absent, cruel, or negligent God or divine power in our lives. Holderlin, however, seems to beg to differ. For him, it is precisely in the challenge of life. The heartbreak, the darkness, the death and doubt and defeat, it's in what's uncomfortable where the real potential for something new can break in. 
Reading his poem the other day, it reminded me of the theme that we've been sticking with throughout Epiphany over the last few weeks, the idea that the life and love of God might just show up in places all over our lives and in this world, but often in ways we don't expect, maybe because it especially shows up in these types of places and in ways that feel dangerous to us. Last week, we talked about how God tends to show up in our human capacity for curiosity and how curiosity can sometimes feel like a threatening or dangerous thing. And today, our text invites us to think about call. As Jesus responds to the call of God on his life, And as he invites others to join in on that call, the journey they embark upon together is a dangerous and risky one. It disrupts their lives in just about every way. John the Baptist is imprisoned and Jesus has to leave town, which should at least indicate for us that the values that Jesus and John seem to preach and lived by challenged and threatened the values of those who governed and found themselves in positions of authority. A fisherman's two sons, they go off and they follow this strange guy with a vision, leaving them with very few concrete plans for the future, and this guy, four hands short in his work, which tends to go directly against what it means to value family and productivity and success in life. And as they follow Jesus, he takes them to places and to rub shoulders with people that they were always taught not to go. To the Gentiles, who were the religious and ethnic others at the time, the differently abled, those that the world believed were riddled with sin and disease and shame and should be avoided, these were the people that Jesus would say in the very next chapter were the ones that were blessed by God. These were the ones that would come to inherit whatever kingdom privileges God was bringing about. Not the perfect or the powerful, or the religious zealots, not princes or emperors or rulers who seemed to often feel favored by God and who reaped the benefits of all their man-made kingdoms. This way that Jesus and his disciples chose to be in the world, it messed up the order of things. The rules for how the world was supposed to work. And so at best... To answer the call to follow Jesus put them at odds with just about everyone around them. And at worst, it had the potential to risk their lives. The call of God in this story and with these people is disruptive. And so I'm not sure how we ever get the idea that answering the call to follow Jesus, which is a call that, by the way, all of us have on our lives, I'm not sure where we ever get the idea that answering such a call would ever be any easier today. Like the disciples, the call to follow Jesus, it should mess up our lives a little bit. Because choosing to follow Jesus is an invitation to live by a different set of values than the ones we most often elevate in this world. For instance, Jesus didn't invest in this story in the places that would bring him the type of power or authority or immediate success that we human beings are taught to crave. 
I heard a story this week about a scientist who made some pretty wonderful discoveries and was in the process of getting those discoveries published in a paper. It had to do with people's thoughts and being able to project those thoughts onto a screen. But before the paper came out, BBC called and asked him to make a short video to help pique people's interest in the topic. So he did. And in the video, he asks a fellow scientist what their discovery might pave the way for in the future. And so the other scientist begins answering this question. He's speculating what one day it could be used for this or that or this. And he said that it could maybe one day be used for dream encoding. Well, the video launched online, and the scientists who created the video started getting all these calls. One pushy reporter called and asked him question after question after question, finally asked him the question, is it really true? Can we encode dreams with this? And the scientist kind of hesitantly was like, well, maybe, yes, no, sort of, and the reporter slammed the phone down. Well, the scientists didn't think much of it, but within 24 hours, Fox and CNN and MSNBC, they were all reporting on how this one scientist had discovered the secret to dream encoding, which wasn't true. His phone started going wild. He was getting calls from reporters and scientists. People were either either super excited and thrilled or they were ticked because they thought he was a liar. So the point where this guy had to turn off his phone because he was so distressed that no matter who he told the truth to, the story just continued to spiral out of control and his credibility as a scientist was on the line. And so about a week later, he turns his phone back on and he realizes that he's missed a call from Christopher Nolan, the director who directed the movie Inception. This was around the time that Inception was coming out. And Inception, if you've never seen it, is about dream encoding and odd, weird dream states in the human brain. It has Leonardo DiCaprio in it. It came out five, ten years ago. So Inception was about to premiere at the time, and Christopher Nolan called to invite the scientists to come to the premiere and tour with the movie, to sort of be the poster boy for this idea behind the movie and to tell people that it was a real possibility. So the scientist calls Christopher Nolan back and says, look, I'm really flattered, but I gotta tell you, this isn't real. This is not what my paper is about. And Christopher Nolan says, well, send me the paper and I'll read it. He reads it, he calls the scientist back, and he says, look, I don't really care. I want you to come and tour with the movie anyways. It'll make you lots of money. You'll be rich and famous. It'll be tons of fun. You should just come and do it. Tell people it's real. And so this scientist who cared so much about his reputation actually had to take the next 24 hours to decide what mattered more. Investing in his long-term career, Investing his life in the potential for success and failure, future discoveries, future setbacks, and ultimately his integrity, or the immediate success he was sure to discover if he went down this route instead. And I tell you this story because as fellow human beings, I wonder how many of us would be tempted to do the exact same at least for those of us who are a little bit of risk takers. I wonder how many of us would do this because it is human nature to feel tempted to invest in the things that will bring us the most immediate sense of success or satisfaction. It's why some of us would probably begrudgingly admit that we're workaholics 
or why marriages and families and friendships seem harder and harder to hold together in our busy lives, why failure is often not a word we like to admit out loud, why churches seem to fixate on numbers and growth, and why it's actually statistically proven that many companies that once led at the top of the market have actually eventually failed. We are tempted to put our time and energy into things that we think will reap us the immediate results rather than investing in things that, yes, will take longer, yes, we don't know the future outcome, but have the potential to be more deeply meaningful or successful in the end. To follow after Jesus and certainty and immediate success to step into the unknownness of life a little bit and invest in people and pets, not because we guarantee there'll be a surefire win for us and will get us immediate results, but because those people and those paths themselves are worth the investment and the risk, regardless of our gains. Jesus also threw for a few people or available to the most devout, important, wealthy, healthy, or stable. Jesus brought the good news to people for whom it was often regulated, who couldn't access it because it was withheld from them, who couldn't let it sink into their lives because of the inequity or inequality they faced or their social status or their cultural assumptions that were made about them or their cultures and countries of origin that they were from or their past mistakes that they were constantly being judged by. I was reading an article this week on something called disruptive innovation. How many of you have heard that term, disruptive innovation? A few people. So in the innovation world, disruptive innovation is a bit different from, say, a breakthrough innovation, where something new is invented or a good product is made better. A disruptive innovation is something that transforms a product that was historically so expensive and complicated that only a few elite people with knowledge and money could access it, and it makes it more affordable and accessible to a much larger population for whom it otherwise would have been out of reach. So, for example, computers are a type of disruptive innovation. The first one that came into existence was called a mainframe computer. It cost several million dollars, and it took years to learn how to use it. And so, it was only the largest corporations and universities that could buy, afford, maybe one. And any time somebody needed a problem to be solved using a computer, that's where they had to go, to the source of that knowledge. But then there came a sequence of other innovations, from the mainframe to the mini to the desktop to the laptop to the smartphone, that has democratized technology in such a way that many, many more people now have access to it. Now, as I thought about this, I thought about the culture that Jesus was living in at the time. Because in the culture that Jesus and the disciples were living in, Life and meaning and religious belonging was generally constructed in a way that the most powerful and the first class and the upper echelon of folks had access to. It was designed for them with in mind. But Jesus was a kind of destructive innovator, destructive, a disruptive innovator in his day, maybe far more disruptive than most 
of the ones that we encounter in our midst. See, because he made the good news of God accessible and tangible to all people, particularly those who were forced to live on the margins and that kept them in conditions that kept them from being able to access the good news that God had in store for their lives. And it made me wonder, what would happen if his people who follow Jesus in our day and age, as people who create ministries and opportunities that we offer in our church, what if we saw ourselves as disruptive innovators, as people who live and breathe and do community in a way that makes faith and the call of God more accessible for people, especially those who can't sense the good news of God because of all the cultural chaos going on around them or the lack of their basic needs being met or because they're trapped in a vacuum of loneliness and shame and defeat or because the world's criteria for love and acceptance tells them that they're the wrong shape or color or ethnic heritage or sexual orientation or tells them that the way they think and feel is wrong or that their work isn't significant enough or that they don't make enough money or that their lives don't matter. Each one of us, we have received a call on our lives to follow Jesus and it disrupts our lives our church, and our world a little bit. Or at least it should. We are called to live by a different set of values, a Jesus set of values in this world where others can more easily hear and access the call of God on their lives to become more mindful of our words that we use and the impact they have in a world that seems to give us permission to think that we can talk to people however we want, to extend mercy and grace to even our most bitter enemies in a world that pressures us to go to war with them, to serve those who for whatever reason can't or don't serve themselves in a world that tells us that every person is just responsible for their own outcomes. We can be people who refuse the idea that something or someone is only as good as what they can produce for us or what we can extract from them. As a church, we can do things like rethink how we do things, how we talk about God, the way we worship, the activities and ministries we invest in, the ways that we engage with our communities so that people can more readily get the sense that maybe God is drawing near, that maybe God is moving in their lives and is calling them to a holy purpose. In the season of Epiphany, I think that God shows up in opportunities that we are given every single day to say yes to the call on our lives to be disruptive innovators. And that isn't always easy. As Frederick Holderlin wrote, we follow Jesus into challenging places and it can disrupt and threaten the comforts of our own lives. But when we do, I think we will find more and more what saves. That the good news of a faithful God can be found in those places if we're only willing to go. Amen.